Welcome back. Hope you had a nice weekend. Didn't spend too much time on astronomy. Uh, um, only assignment due this week is homework three, which is due at the end of the week. So relative, relatively light week uh, assignment-wise. There is a quiz right now scheduled for this, for the end of this week, which hopefully we'll still get there as long as we get through chapter nine or well, well into chapter nine by Friday. I will still keep that. Otherwise, it might get scheduled a day or two later. And then exam two coming up next week, scheduled for Wednesday the second right now, covering chapters three. Chapters 4 through 8 is one unit, and then chapter 9 on the sun. Then the other two things coming up, uh, the second iTunes quiz will come up uh, next two weeks, on the 7th, starting on the 7th of October, and that will cover the pictures for the month. If you look at the table I gave you in the syllabus, I don't think I had that scheduled for a couple weeks. I'm trying to put it here, trying to give you about a month's worth of pictures so you don't have too many all at once. You don't have to look at 40 or 50 pictures at once. So there'll be one, this one will be the beginning of October, there'll be one the beginning of November, and then one the beginning of December. So that's the correct date on it. And then homework four, which I'll probably give you out towards the end of the week, will be due on the 11th of October. So essentially what's coming up here over the next, over the next couple of weeks. Question, questions? No, no, no. All right. Picture of the day for today. I see 4628. Uh, IC is the index catalog. It's a catalog of nebulous objects or fuzzy objects in the, in the sky. This is actually called, or name is the Prawn Nebula. If you see the giant shrimp there, good for you. I don't. Anybody? No? Okay. Nobody, nobody, see, nobody sees the prawn? I see it. You see it. Okay. One person. <laughs> Uh huh. Okay. Maybe, maybe. I mean, that's how it usually gets. I mean, somebody sees it there, but other people will look at it and see absolutely nothing, nothing of it. So, so actually, you can take them and pretty much make up whatever you, whatever you like. I mean, they're just it's, it is just a naming for it. But good, I'm glad someone can see can see something of it in this one. Um, yeah. So I understand somebody looked at that blob there and saw a shrimp. Yes. Oh, yeah. You see it, you see it? It must have a very good imagination. <laughs> well, sometimes it's just how we see it. A couple people here seem to see it, which is, which is great. It wasn't the first thing that jumped out at me at it when I looked at it. Now some of them do. When you see the horse head nebula, you can see a little horse head there, you know, a little chest, chest knight piece there. This one, not one that jumps out, jumps out at me. Um, what? More of a fish? Okay. Yeah. So, but this is actually a rather big nebula. The space here that it's covering would, would fit about four full moons in it. So it's actually a relatively large. It's not just a little teeny tiny thing looking at it. It actually covers a good chunk of the sky. So it covers about a degree. Moon's about half a degree in size. If you put four full moons in there, you're talking about a degree across. So you can actually fit several full moons in this area. So it's rather large. Uh, it is a nebula, a region. This type of nebula is an emission nebula in the red. That's that red hydrogen line that we looked at and sketched a week or so ago in lab. 
That's the emission due to hydrogen. When hydrogen gets excited, all the reddish color. The blue color is reflection, reflection nebula. And that is the light from the very hot stars here reflecting off of dust grains. So there's a very dusty area here where a lot of that material is being, light is being reflected to us by those dust grains and gives it a bluish color. So you tend to see that combination of colors quite a bit in these nebulae. You'll see the reddish due to hydrogen and you'll see because hydrogen makes up about still 90 some percent of the, all the atoms in the universe. And you'll see the blue due to the dust grains where the dust gets reflected. And you also see some darker areas here. Especially down in this portion you see some very dark areas where there's essentially nothing. Or it looks like there's nothing. There's actually a lot there. We just can't see it. That's where the dust has concentrated so much that it blocks out all of the light. So when you look at these, there's actually little knots of material where probably you're in the process of forming a star. And if you could come back in 100,000 years, relatively short time astronomically speaking, then there'd be new clusters of stars that have formed. And if you could go back 100,000 years, you'd have probably have seen similar knots to this scattered elsewhere around this nebula where the stars have now broken out. They've actually begun producing energy and have burst out of their little cocoons where they formed. And we'll go through in a little more detail the formation of the stars. Once we get through the chapter on the sun, we'll jump out and start talking about stars and how stars, how stars form and what they do and they, as they go through their lives. Question? Other questions? No? No? No. Yes? Uh, how big is this uh, nebula? Uh, it's, a, it's, it's about four full moons in size. So you can fit four full moons, full moons. So it's pretty, pretty big on the sky. Now how big is it actually? I don't know if they give me an actual, sometimes they do. About 250 light years across. So if you want an actual physical size, about 250 light years. Of course, how big it appears on the sky depends on how close or how far away it is. This one is about six, uh, distance is estimated to be about 6,000 light years. So we see it as it was 6,000 years ago. But even astronomically speaking, something like this isn't going to change drastically in 6,000 years. <coughs> Tens of thousands and hundreds of thousands of years, yeah. Did you have a question? The yellowish is probably just brighter, uh, more, more light from stars there. You're just getting a concentration of stars illuminating that. Um, I'm not really sure why it would be yellow other than the specific, you might be getting a combination of light from some different stars illuminating it, but there is that yellow band sort of towards the center. And a little bit more actually off towards, get a little bit of yellowish down here. And it may be a matter of just the types of stars that are there. There might be some, might be an older section where there are older stars, uh, some older stars still present. And less of the very, the bluish ones. But I don't believe that is due to a different type of emission. Really red is the only one that you, you get in strength unless you're specifically looking at looking for other elements. You don't just detect them easily in a regular image like this. And I don't believe it says anything else about any, un sometimes it'll tell me that it's looking at specific colors of light or a specific way. And it'll be look at sometimes at sulfur or you'll look at oxygen and you'll color code it that way. But this one doesn't say anything specifically, specific about that. Anything else? Anything else? All right. All right, let's go out to the planets. 
or back to the planets. We started talking about the Earth and the Moon a little bit last time. And we're going to start, go on to the terrestrial planets now. So today we'll start to do the terrestrial planets and probably get to get started on the Jovian planets and then finish those up on, on Wednesday. Terrestrial planets are the planets that are a lot like the Earth. So solid surface, something that we can land on. This is an image here of Mars. And one of the landers there that has landed on Mars, you got a little bit of it in the distance in the foreground and then out in the distance you see the surface of Mars. Doesn't look that different than the Earth, right? Ignore the fact that there's no plants, no trees, no animals hopping through the picture. But other than that, you know, if you took a picture of the desert out on Earth someplace, does it look all that different? It really doesn't. The terrestrial planets, when you look at them, especially Venus and Mars, the larger ones with atmospheres, do not look all that different than the Earth Overall, certainly having life on Earth is a, is a big difference, and you're not going to see you know trees sprouting up or animals coming across the image, but you do see uh, the general features don't look all that different than a desert area on the Earth. Now the terrestrial planets are Mercury, Venus, and Mars. Um, going to look a little bit at Mercury and Venus here uh, briefly. In fact, Mercury, there's not a whole lot that we know about. We're just starting to learn about it in the last couple of years, really, in terms of Mercury. Mercury's been known since ancient times. There is no date of discovery of Mercury because it was known to the very ancient astronomers. We don't know when it was actually discovered. But what this diagram is showing is the orbits. There's the Sun at the center. There's Mercury. There's Venus. And there's Mars. Here's Earth in between. And what this means is that Earth here as Earth orbits around and the other planets orbit around, you can never see Mercury more than about 28 degrees away from the Sun. Okay, 28 degrees, that's about 56 full moons. That doesn't help too much. But what that means is in order to see Mercury, it's got to be dark, right, to see it because the Sun's going to blot it out, right? Mercury's out there right now. If you know where to look, you could go find it. Okay, you need a telescope, you need to be pointing in the right direction, and as long as it's far enough away from the sun, but it's not going to stand out. So in order to see it, you've got to get the sun below the horizon. You have to get to the point where the sun is set, but Mercury is still above it. And there's only a very short time, a very short window when that happens. The sun drops below the horizon. Okay? Doesn't get dark all of a sudden, right? Sun doesn't set and all of a sudden it gets dark. Starts to get dark but it doesn't get dark immediately, so you've got to get that sun well below the horizon. And by that time that it's starting to get dark, Venus, or, or Mercury at its very best, is you know, very, very low out in the western sky. Or, if you're looking at the opposite, at sunrise, very, very low in the eastern sky right before sunrise. That's the only times you can see it. So, you're talking at most with sunset, 28 degrees. 28 degrees well, one fist held at arm's length is about 10 degrees. So if you get the sun a little bit below the horizon, you're talking one to two fists held up above the horizon. That's about how high, Venus, or how high Mercury gets at its best. It's not very much. So if you want to point a telescope at it, right? you're pointing your telescope very low, you can do that. Telescopes will point that low. But you're looking through a lot of atmosphere. So you're not going to get very good images of Mercury. And in fact, we didn't know a lot of things about how Mercury rotates or pretty much anything about Mercury until the 1970s 
when the first spacecraft flew by it. And I'm going to exit out of here and show you a couple things on Mercury because I don't have a lot directly in this. Me. In fact, there is the first image. This is from Mariner 10 back in the 70s. And there's a beautiful image of Mercury. Not a lot of detail that you're seeing there compared to what we see today. But something and a lot more than you could ever get from the Earth. From the Earth you just get a pretty much a big blurred blob because you're looking through so much atmosphere. So unable to really see anything. Um, Hubble Space Telescope being up above the atmosphere. You know, maybe a little more detail, but still not a lot. This is actually spacecraft that flew by Mercury back in the mid-1970s and gave us our first images of part of the surface. So it flew by, it wasn't an orbiter, it didn't go into orbit around Mercury, it passed by and then headed, headed off elsewhere into space. So it was able to get us a couple images and for, let's see, the next, that was mid-1970s, for the next 35 years or so, that was it. Those were our images of Mercury. Anything we could see from Earth and a couple images from the Mariner spacecraft. It wasn't until a couple of years, about two years ago, that the messenger craft actually went into orbit around Mercury. And in fact, it's just been noted, as the headline up there showed, it was a, uh, finally has imaged, after two years, it's finally imaged 100% of the surface. So it's actually, we actually now have images of the entire surface. And they're finding some interesting things, like the evidence for ice, that there's ice on Mercury. How do you get ice on a planet that's that close to the sun? It should be baking, you should, you should melt out anything. But when you get look very close to the polar regions, you will get areas that are in perpetual shadow that never ever see the sunlight. So no matter where they are, they would always be, the shadow walls are high enough, they're always casting shadows, and they're finding ice is embedded in the polar regions of Mercury. Not a lot of it compared to what you see here on Earth, but we're seeing it on Mercury and we see it on the Moon as, as well. So these are just some of the images, getting a little bit more detail. Now that we've had a spacecraft in orbit around it for a couple of years, we can see lots of craters. Looks very similar to the surface of the Moon. Um, close up a little bit more of a crater, crater there. But Messenger is still working, still taking images of Mercury, and still looking for to complete the high resolution survey of Mercury. It's now imaged everything, but not at its highest resolution yet. Uh, some of the polar regions were the hardest for it to get, and I think it was part of the north polar region of Mercury, was one of the last ones that was just imaged relatively recently that finally completed, got it from 99.99% of the surface being imaged to finally having imaged the entire thing. So little mission time there. If you look on the left, it shows you how long this has been going. So a little over 3,000 days. I said it's only been there for two years, right? Something's off, 3,000 some days. That's almost 10 years. Well, that's about, that concludes some of the time that it took it to get to Mercury. Mercury may be close, but it is difficult and very expensive to send a rocket straight to Mercury. You know, if you want to get the power of a rocket just to send it in and get it in there and to get it into orbit would be extremely expensive and extremely difficult. So what they do is they send it out in other orbits. It loops around the Earth, goes out to Venus, uses that, and uses the energy of the other planets to get it into the proper orbit. And then finally, it actually flew by Mercury twice, got some images, before it finally was able to, finally got it into orbit around Mercury. So that's why the mission time there, that's how long it's been going. 
know, pushing nine, well, about nine years worth now. So since it was originally begun. So I wanted to show you some images there because I didn't have any real good ones in the PowerPoint slides. So I wanted to show you a few images that have come up. Some of the latest images that were taken from the Messenger spacecraft, which is still going and is intended to continue, tended to continue on as long as they can keep it, as long as they can keep it functioning. Yeah, kind of a slingshot. We've used it for other planets where it will fly by and it will use the gravity of that planet to adjust its orbit and to speed it up. Because if you want to go from Earth, which takes a year to orbit around, Mercury is moving a lot faster, you've got to speed that thing up. You've got to get going a lot faster to get it uh, into the same orbit, orbital region as Mercury. So you could do that by launching it with a massive rocket and getting all that energy at once. Or a lot less expensively, you can launch it with a smaller rocket Send it by the moon, pick up a little bit of energy, send it out to Venus, pick up and take a couple of years to do it, but pick up the energy that way and do it a lot in a lot less expensive manner. All right, so that's what I was showing here, and that's one of the reasons we really didn't know anything about Mercury until recently. And you know, how would we have known about ice on Mercury? Well, we couldn't have from just looking at it from the Earth. Venus is similar. Venus gets only, a, so because it's inside the orbit of the Earth, it can only get about 47 degrees away from the Sun. 47 degrees, that's about halfway from the horizon to the zenith point straight overhead, about halfway at its best. Again, that's just at sunset. So really, once you get it a little bit, but once you get the Sun enough below the horizon, it's even lower. Nice thing about Venus is that it's bright. It's the third brightest object in the sky, Sun, Moon, Venus is the next brightest. And actually, if you look out in the evening right now and you look out to the west, you'll see it. It'll be out there pretty much all semester in the evening sky. So when you look out to the west after sunset, once it starts to get dark, that bright object that's the first to appear is actually the planet Venus. So you can actually see that right, you can actually see that right now. But neither of these two ever get seen very far from the sun. And both are very difficult, therefore, to study from the Earth. It's hard to point telescopes Remember we talked about telescopes and seeing, right? Atmosphere messes things up. When you look up high, you're looking through less atmosphere. When you try to look really down low, you're looking through a lot of the Earth's atmosphere. So if we're here on Earth and you got your telescope set here, and here's the Earth's atmosphere, if I want to look straight up, I got to look through that much atmosphere. But if I want to look at something very low on the horizon, all of a sudden now, instead I'm looking through three or four times as much atmosphere. Makes everything that much more turbulent when we're trying to look there. The closer that gets to the horizon, the harder it is to really see anything with the telescope. Question. Yes, yes. When the, um, when the moon comes up and it's low and mm-hmm. sometimes it has like that orange glow to it mm-hmm. as it gets higher, it turns into a whiter yellow. Turns into a whiter yellow. Sun, sun does the same thing, right? You're looking through, it's all that you're looking through a lot of atmosphere. The atmosphere is very good at scattering out blue light. That's why the sky is blue. It scatters the blue light all over the place, so we see the blue light coming from every direction. What's left if you take out the blue light? Reds and oranges. So that's why the moonrise or moonset will look redder. That's why the sunrise or sunset will look redder. The sun isn't changing color, we know that. It's just that all the blue light is getting scattered around, so it's because of all those sunsets that the sky is blue. 
all that blue light is now coming from all directions. Yeah, good question. Good? All right, so let's look at some of the atmospheres of these planets. Mercury has essentially no atmosphere. I mean, similar, if anything, similar to the moon. It could have, you know, a few particles here or there, but it's really hot. It's really small, doesn't have a lot of mass to hold on to an atmosphere, and too close to the sun. So too close to the energetic sun to really be able to hold on to any kind of atmosphere. So of the terrestrial planets, Mercury is the one with essentially no atmosphere. Venus and Mars do have atmospheres. Um, one a lot thicker than the Earth, Venus. Venus has an incredibly thick atmosphere, about a hundred times the density of the Earth's atmosphere. So you can imagine landing on Venus, right? You're, you walk out there. Okay, ignore the other effects. Like there's other other stuff we'll talk about in terms of temperature and other stuff that'll that would you know vaporize you. But you've the pressure instead of being this pressure would be a hundred times greater pushing on you. So pushing on every square inch of your body would be a hundred times what is pushing on you right now. So Venus has a lot more atmosphere, extremely dense atmosphere, completely cloud covered. We still do not have a lot of images of the surface of Venus taken in visible light. We have some, I think I have one here to show you in a, in a minute, I think I put one on here. Um, we have some from a couple of the uh, Soviet landers that actually landed on the surface of Venus. but. It's a very inhospitable place. In fact, of all the terrestrial planets, it's the hardest one and probably would be the last one that you'd ever land a person on. Even Venus, even Mercury being a lot closer to the sun would be easier to put a person on than it would be to put them on Venus. Venus has incredibly hot temperatures, about 900 degrees Fahrenheit at the surface. So turn your oven on up to like 450. That's pretty hot, you know. Double that now, that's the, that's the average surface temperature of Venus. So completely, I mean, completely different, different than the Earth. Completely covered in clouds. We can't see it. You can't see it. You can't see the surface unless you get something down below those clouds. At which point you have temperatures that can melt lead. You have incredibly high pressures. And you have an atmosphere that's not like the Earth's, that has very uh, corrosive chemicals sulfuric acid, things like that. So the spacecraft that have gone through Venus's atmosphere haven't survived very long. So there are a couple spacecraft that have lasted uh, minutes to hours on the surface, been able to send back a few images, but nothing in great detail. We do know a lot about the surface, and I'll show you an image of this in a little bit, through radar maps. So the US has sent spacecraft, instead of trying to land on Venus or trying to map it that way, just to take radar images and get ideas of what it looks like that way. But in terms of visual images, not a whole lot. So a lot of clouds, but unlike this image here, which is actually in the ultraviolet, you're not really seeing down. You're seeing different levels of cloud layers. When you see this image, it kind of makes you think it looks like the Earth and you're seeing down through it. You're not. You're seeing upper level clouds, higher clouds, and you're seeing lower clouds. But any visible light not, is, is blocked out. We cannot see anything from the surface of, of Venus. We cannot see any part of that surface. The atmosphere of Mars is very similar to actually Venus's in composition, not the Earth's. The composition of both of those atmospheres is pretty much carbon dioxide. About it. On both of those. Venus is uh, 
very high percentage of carbon dioxide. Mars is a very high percentage of carbon dioxide. The difference with Mars is, is that it's a much thinner atmosphere. Venus's is about 100 times the Earth's. Mars's is about 1 100th the, comp the density of the Earth, so a much thinner atmosphere. But they both do have atmospheres, and that keeps Venus, has that big blanket around it, keeps it very, very warm. Mars's actually keeps it slightly warmer than it otherwise would be, but it's much cooler, still much cooler than the temperatures we're used to here on the Earth. A runaway greenhouse effect. What would happen is that on the Earth, the carbon dioxide is very nicely removed by the oceans. So we have liquid water that can actually scrub out the atmosphere and remove carbon dioxide. That's how you get carbonate rocks in the oceans. It's all the carbon dioxide converted into rocks in the oceans. And then that didn't happen if Venus didn't have water or got too hot. The water vapor in the atmosphere, if you recall, water vapor was very good at absorbing infrared radiation. Well, it acts like a blanket. Does it here on Earth too, right? We're used to that. The nights when it gets really, really cold, when they're clear, right? It's clear, there's no blanket up there, there's no water vapor, all the heat escapes out into space. On those cloudy days, it stays warmer at night, right? It's nice and cloudy, you've got this blanket, oh, essentially have a blanket over the Earth holding that, holding that heat in. So water vapor was an important one. Having water on the surface is good at removing the carbon dioxide. Once you stop that and you lose that in the atmosphere, it works as a blanket to hold in the heat. And then it becomes a runaway because you get to temperatures where you could never have liquid water. Get to much too high temperatures on Venus and you could not have liquid water on its surface now. Actually, you couldn't have liquid water on Mars's surface for the opposite reason. It's much too, much too thin. I did put a picture of a messenger picture in here. But there's an idea of Mercury's. Uh, surface. I showed you a couple like that before. A lot of craters. Looks a lot like the moon. You can see some relatively young craters that look very fresh here. Things that are, in this case, hundreds of kilometers across. You'll see a central peak left behind from that little splash of material. And you'll see some material that was ejected out and scattered around. Some of these you can see much older craters. You know, here's a very old one. Very washed out. It's been hit by another crater. It's been hit by lots of little, little impacts on top of it. But you can still see the remnants, remnants of that. So Mercury does look a lot like our moon. Venus and Mars look a lot more like the Earth. Mercury being a lot smaller, a lot less atmosphere. It's the, been cratered and the cratering has held up. The cratering is still there. There's been no weathering effects to wash it out. So we still see that. Again, this was Messenger as we looked at a couple images before and then the Mariner spacecraft was the first one that gave us any images and any idea of really what the surface of Mercury looked like. Too small to have volcanoes, yes. It does not have any sign of, it probably had uh, volcanic activity at some point in the past. You know, lava, lava flows. But too small to have anything in terms of a volcano that we think of on Earth or that we'll see on some of the other planets. So yeah, it's much too, much too small for those. What it does have is it has one unusual feature called a scarp. And in fact, did I not put it on here? It's actually a specific type of scarp, a lobate scarp. And what this is, a scarp is a cliff. So we have cliffs on the Earth, right? These are pretty big cliffs. You can see some of them kind of scattered through here, these long areas stretching through, kind of with the little 
scalloped curved area, curved levels to them, they can be about three kilometers high. So you're talking two mile high cliffs. So not just a little cliff, you know, not a couple hundred feet or a couple th- or a thousand feet. You're talking things that are a couple miles high. These are believed to have formed when the planet, uh, as the planet cooled. And perhaps what happened is that the planet cooled, the crust solidified, and the inner portion had not fully solidified yet. As it did, what happens to things when they solidify? They shrink, right? So the inner layers shrink, leave it pulling material down and kind of pulled it and crumpled up the crust a little bit. So that's what we're seeing here is some of those remnants of what happened when Mercury cooled off several, about four billion years ago. And that's why there's some of the oldest features. You see that there's no craters on top of them. So they've been hit a lot in the meantime. But that's what would have happened when the, when the planet, I believe it occur when the planet actually was shrinking and cooling and shrinking. But miles high, they don't, they don't look like it there, right? They look like little tiny bumps, right? You can run your hand over it. But when you actually do this to scale, this is 100 kilometers in size. So when you actually can measure this, that actually can be miles, a mile high cliff or several mile high cliff. Here's Venus. Venus looks a lot like the Earth. I told you that Venus is measured through um, radar images. So this for comparison. These are both radar images of the Earth and of Venus. They look pretty much the same. Not in the details, but you know, no, you don't see a North America there. You don't see a South America uh, or other continents there. But you see continents. Certainly they're called Ishtar up here towards the northern part and then Aphrodite towards the equatorial regions. You have some areas that are higher areas. You have a lot of blue lying areas which are lower. On the Earth those blue lying areas are oceans. On Venus they're not. But if you could imagine that you could then fill Venus with water, this would be where their continents would be. All this blue would be flooded with water. If you could do that and you'd have a continent over here, you'd have scattered islands and other things over there, you'd have another big continent up towards the top, towards the northern pole of Venus. So it doesn't look, obviously it's not going to look exactly like the Earth, but overall it's about the same. I mean, same general types of features we see that would, that would occur. Again, here you actually have liquid water. Venus at 900 degrees, a little bit warm for any, have any liquid water there. But the general structure, the general idea is still the same, what we see. I said we did have some pictures of the surface of Venus. This is one of them. This is taken by the Venera lander. There were a couple of them that actually landed on the surface of Venus. Lasted between about 15 minutes and maybe an hour and a half. So the first ones didn't even make it. The earliest ones didn't even make it down to the surface. They'd be crushed or destroyed by the, hev- by the intense temperatures and pressures before they got down. The last few in the early 80s or late 70s, early 80s were able to land on the surface and send back images for a short time before the atmosphere finally got to them. Now you see that the, again, the structure like we looked at that one of Mars at the beginning doesn't look that different than things you might see on the surface of the Earth. You can imagine finding an image of that, like that, on the Earth, some out someplace, you know, in the deserts, someplace where it is very dry, where you don't have any kind of liquid water, and where you don't see a lot of living material. So 
We do have some images, but they're very limited. Most of what we know for about Venus, except for the couple areas where the, space, the Venera spacecraft landed, is only from the orbiters that are using radar. So the image that we looked at on the previous screen. Alright, as I said, we're jumping through the planets pretty quickly. Head off to Mars. And some of the features here. Um, but some cra- it does have some cratering, so there are some areas that are cratered, especially towards the southern hemisphere. Uh, you don't see a whole lot of that on this image very well, but there are some cratering there when you zoom in. Uh, there are some volcanoes. So Mars, unlike Mercury or the Moon, actually has volcanoes like we think about them on Earth. Not active anymore, but does have volcanoes. In fact, has the biggest volcanoes in the solar system. There's a couple shown here. There's three, one just around. And then there's the largest volcano is Olympus Mons, slightly around the curvature that we see from what we see in this image. So it does have craters, in fact, uh, volcanoes, much like the Hawaiian Island volcanoes. So similar type to that. Not due to a lot of the volcanoes we get on Earth are due to plate tectonics. So moving plates on the Earth, so we get volcanoes, you know, in Washington State where plates are colliding and material is being melted and that causes volcanic activity. Up in Alaska, similar thing. These are more similar to what you get in Hawaii, which is just that you have a weak spot in the crust and that weak spot allows material to flow up and create a volcano. The difference between between Hawaii and Mars is that On Earth, the plates are moving around, right? So all the plates are moving relative to each other. If they didn't, we wouldn't have all these volcanic activity. We wouldn't have earthquakes. That's all pretty much all caused by that. Mars doesn't have that. So when you see, when you look at the Hawaiian Islands, there's not just one, there's a whole bunch of them, right? Got a real big one, and then smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller going back. That big one is the currently active one. Actually, there's even more active right off under the water below past it, but that's the active one. That's why it's so big. But millions of years ago, right, that island didn't exist. And this one was active. Millions of years before that. So over millions of years, they've actually created the Hawaiian Islands. There's a new one coming, right? So if you can come back in a million years, there'll be a new Hawaiian Island. So where do you want to go invest your money for millions of years from now, right? New Hawaiian Island coming. But in, on, on, Merc- on Mars, they couldn't do that. There are no plate tectonics, so there was nothing that, to move. And the volcano just kept erupting in the same spot. So instead of getting a chain of volcanoes, you get one big, giant volcano. Bigger than anything we can imagine on the Earth. And I have a picture, I believe the next one. Let me make sure. Yeah, should be. Yes, it is. Okay, I'll come back to that. I want to finish this up. But yeah, I do have a nice picture of Olympus Mons to show you that next. Give you some ideas of the, of the sizing. The other thing that we see here, there are some plains, very flat areas that don't have a lot. There's also this gigantic uh, valley, Valles Marineris, uh, discovered by the Mariner spacecraft. So that's how it got its name. This stretches across a large chunk of the surface of uh, Mars. It's sort of like a giant fault, but this giant fault, this giant fault on Mars, you know, looks like a great canyon or something, uh, would stretch across the entire United States. So, you know, you can put Washington D.C. on one end, San Francisco on the other end. That stretches across the entirety of the United States. So, Grand Canyon's big, right? Nothing compared to that. You know, Grand Canyon fits in one of these little tiny 
Well, it fits in one of those little tiny things up there somewhere. This would stretch across our entire country. Probably an idea of where the where plate tectonics tried to start on Mars. It actually started to split plates apart, but Mars was much smaller than the Earth, cooled off a lot quicker, and the plates never really got formed all the way around the surface, never got to get a complete set of plates, plates moving as they did on the, on the Earth. So if that had happened, you might have had a completely different set and might have had chains of volcanoes here on Mars. Mars being half the size of the Earth, did not, was not, was cooled off much quicker and was not able to get that. Now I said Olympus Mons, this is actually the largest volcano in the solar system. If you look at that, it's 700 kilometers in diameter at the base. Pretty big, right? 700 kilometers, how big is that, right? Everybody knows what 700 kilometers is, right? No? About 400, about four, a little over 400 miles. So 400 miles across, 400, well, about 400, 430, 440 miles across. That's pretty big. So, you know, set it in the middle of Pennsylvania and it, it wipes out the entire state. That would cover our entire, easily cover our entire state. That's 400, 400 and some miles across. 25 kilometers high, three times higher than Mount Everest. So, much, much higher than anything we get here on the Earth. In fact, the caldera at the center, the opening where lava would have flowed out, is about, still about 80 kilometers, about the size of one of the smaller states, you know, Rhode Island, Connecticut, could fit in the caldera. You know, just the opening here, not a let, let alone the whole rest of the volcano, but just the opening where lava had flowed out at one point would be about that size, about the size of one of the smaller states. That is the largest of them. There's several other volcanoes that I showed you a couple of on the other image. They're not a lot smaller. They're a little bit smaller than that, but still much bigger than anything we get here on the Earth. Why do we get so much bigger volcanoes on Mars? Well, I already mentioned part of it. No, no plates. So that volcano can keep erupting in the same spot. And when you do that for not just years or tens or hundreds, when you're doing this for millions and bil a billion years, that's a long time. You know, put a little bit of layer, a new layer on it each time, every, couple, every couple of years. All of a sudden, you've got a monster volcano there. The other thing is that Mars has weaker gravity. So there's less gravity pulling the volcano down. And what will happen if you get something too big on the Earth, eventually you get to a point where gravity pulls that mountain down so much that it will sink. So you'll actually sink it down a little bit and keep it from getting as tall as it otherwise would be. The gravity will essentially you know, start to liquefy the base. Not all at once, not where it's going to just squish down, you know, disappear all of a sudden. But over time, it's going to, you know, slowly sink down. So if you try to form a real big mountain on the Earth, the gravity will keep it from forming a bit too large. On Mars, the gravity is less, so you don't, you don't get that. That would, I mean, Mount Everest, I'd have to see what the limit is to how big you could get something on the Earth. But it's probably you're pushing the limit with those as to how big you could actually get something. Eventually, you know, that, all that weight pushing down will push back into the crust. So it depends on how strong the crust is. Mars should have a very thick, strong crust so it can support a lot more. And it's got lower gravity so there's not as much weight pushing down, right? The weight, your weight on Mars, go ca do the calculators, figure out how much you weigh on Mars. It's a lot less, you know. You know really want to lose weight quick thing, go, go to Mars. You, lose, you can lose you know, half a quarter of your weight or three quarters of your weight all at once. Doesn't really change anything, of course, but the, the, mass is, the mass doesn't change, but the weight will actually be a lot less. So the weight of all that rock pushing down is less than it would be if you tried to put that same volcano 
right here on the surface of the Earth. Now, looking at the craters is how we tell the ages of the surface of anything, any solid object in the solar system. We look at the, how many craters there are. The more craters, the more heavily cratered the surface is, the longer the time since that surface has been reworked. Moon's got a lot of craters. Moon's surface is 4 billion years old. Hasn't changed a whole lot since then. So most of the craters that were formed then were, are still there. Mercury has a lot of craters. Venus and the Earth do not. Mars in between. Venus and the Earth have a lot more weathering effects that have minimized their craters and wiped out those craters over astronomical time periods. So they won't last for years, but over tens of thousands of years and hundreds of thousands of years, any craters that form on the Earth get wiped out. Any craters that form on the Moon are still there. So we still see those craters. So we can see some of those craters. We can use that to estimate the ages. The more craters we see on an object, the older it is. So the Moon, we see parts of the Moon with lots of craters. We see parts of the Moons with very few craters. It tells us which parts of those sur Moon surface were formed more recently. Same thing on any of the other planets. The other thing that I'm showing you down here with the images, these are some evidence of perhaps some water flows. You have some flowing and some evidence perhaps in this left image. You also have one here. We looked at craters on the Moon and how they ejected those nice sharp rays out. Well, what does this one look like? This looks like somebody threw a big rock in a mud puddle, doesn't it? Look how everything kind of splashed out and very irregular and muddy. So what it could be is that the impact occurred in something that was not necessarily mud, but some kind of liquid or frozen water, frozen different types of ices. And that impact would have heated them up, melted them all, and splashed them out in the impact. So evidence in a couple cases that liquid, liquids have existed on the surface of Mars in the past. Currently, there cannot be any liquid water on the surface of Mars. The atmospheric pressure is too low. Temperature is OK. It can get up to like 60 or 70 degrees in the summertime at the equator of Mars. Still chilly, but you know, could have liquid water. The pressure is too low. You have to have a certain amount of atmospheric pressure in order to hold water in a liquid state. So we see water as ice on Mars. We can see water as water vapor on Mars. But you don't get a liquid state in between them. When the ice, ice caps melt, they don't melt in terms of becoming liquid. They melt in terms of going right from solid right to a gas, sort of the way dry ice does here on Earth. Right? It goes directly from a solid to a gas. There's no liquid state because our pressure isn't sufficient to be able to do that. Water's at the same situation on Mars. Terrestrial planets? Look at that. We've done three chapters in like a day and a half. That's why I said that's one unit total. So. Jovian planets, be able to get started on this a little bit. Jovian planets are the outermost planets, Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, and Neptune. Quite different than the terrestrial planets in that we've never landed on one of them and we never will land on one of them. No? We'll land on Venus before we can land on Jupiter. And Venus isn't going to be an e wouldn't be an easy one to land on. Um, or any of the Jovian planets. There is no solid surface down there. There is rocky material down towards the core. But the thick atmospheres you know, dwarf what we got with Venus. Venus is 100 times the Earth's pressure. You can get things that are many, many more times, many times thicker than that. So Jovian planets start off with Jupiter. 
Here's what you might see through a relatively small telescope looking at Jupiter. Um, probably even Galileo didn't see quite this good of an image. But you can see the planet is definitely a disk. You see some darker and lighter structures on the surface. We'll look at those in more detail coming up here. And you see some of the Galilean satellites. So some of the moons of Jupiter here around it. So that's what Galileo was able to see. And he could over time watch this one and then come back, you know, a couple hours later to a day later and find that it had moved and that it had moved. And over time, as they passed back and forth in front of Jupiter, he was able to figure out their orbits. So he had actually these stars right by Jupiter that eventually he turned out to be their moon, moons. But Jupiter can be seen very easily. You don't need a very big telescope to be able to see, to see Jupiter. Relatively small one will pick out Jupiter. We'll pick out its moons. Actually the largest of its moons, technically on, it's, it's visible to the naked eye. But you have to have ideal conditions and you've really got to kind of have a way of blocking out the light of Jupiter because Jupiter overwhelms it. But at its furthest distance it would be visible to the naked eye and it would be just small enough that just far enough away that if you have good eyes you'd be able to separate it. So there are reports of people having been able to see that going back to a couple hundred years BC that people may have been able to have seen that. Of course we have no way to confirm that they, that they could or could or did or did not see that. Here's a little bit better image of Jupiter. Um, a lot more detail here. So you see that there are lighter areas and darker areas. We got a hint of that on that first image. But there are darker areas and lighter areas in the atmosphere. There are also lots of storms. You see lots of circular little storms, especially down here in, the hemisphere, in this hemisphere. So you've got a lot of storms. You've got one great storm, the great red spot on Jupiter. And we'll come back and look at that in a little bit more detail, probably on Wednesday. But that is a great storm that has been present since we've had telescopes strong enough to be able to see Jupiter. Galileo's telescope would not have been strong enough to pick up the red spot, wouldn't have been able to see it. But it wasn't that much later that the first reports of it, late 1600s, the first reports of possibly this great red spot started to come through. And it's been observed on and off ever since. So unlike storms on Earth which come and go, you know, big hurricane might last a month. Right, from the time it starts forming out in the Atlantic till it finally wears itself out completely. It might last a month or so. On Jupiter, that thing's been going for hundreds of years and still going. Was it going before that? Did it form at the time of Galileo? Did it form in the 1600s? Maybe. Did it form 3,000 years before that or 10,000 or 20,000 or a million? We have no way to know. There's no way to have observations of it until we had the proper technology. So how long it's lasted and how long it will last is a good question. Uh, some of the other smaller storms do come and go. This one has been, again, present for several hundred years. I'll show you some close-ups of that in a little bit. I kind of want to skim through the first few planets at the beginning here. I'll try to get through those. Saturn, not as pretty as Jupiter. Ignore the rings. Surface-wise, it looks very bland. Rings make it look beautiful. Rings make it stand out. but. Surface features of, of Saturn, you've got some of the bands, but not near as much as you did with Jupiter. Saturn is much farther away from the sun, much cooler. So all of, the, all of those bands that we see on Jupiter exist on Saturn, but they're buried deep down, in, deep down closer to the planet where it's a little bit warmer, where they could form. So we're looking through them through so much more of the hazy atmosphere that they all get blanded out. We do see the rings. Not just a single ring, but actually a large number of rings around Saturn. So 
very bright rings, darker rings, gaps between them. And we'll look at those again. We'll look at the rings of all the Jovian planets in a little bit more detail when we get to chapter 8. Covers sort of the rings and the moons. This one's just going to talk about just the planets themselves. But we do see those, so we do see actually, you know, we do see the rings around them. Galileo could almost see them. Not quite. He could see that there was something oddly shaped about Saturn through his telescopes. It was about another 60 or so years after Galileo first looked at Saturn that we were able to get a big enough telescope to really see that there were actually rings around Saturn. The last two, Uranus gets even blander. There's hardly anything there. Very nice smooth surface. Uh, there's a couple little features. I don't know if you can pick them out on the projection, but there's a couple little, eh, vaguely, there's a couple little features up here. There's some small clouds and things that we see, but not a lot. Very blue, very blue color due to its composition. It's got a lot of methane in its atmosphere. Methane loves to absorb red light. Real good at absorbing red light. So you send white light from the sun off the planet. All the red light gets absorbed by the methane and is gone. So what comes back to us? The blue light. So we're going to see it as a, as a blue planet. So that's actually what the color of it would look like, would be a bluish green. And we see a similar thing on, Uranus, on Neptune. You get a little bit further out. Little bluer there. Actually has this, the great dark spot uh, in comparison to the uh, great red spot that was seen on Jupiter. This did not last near as long though. Or did it? It was visible when Voyager flew by in 1989. But Hubble Space Telescope has not been able to pick it up since then. So we saw it for a while. It seems to have disappeared and dissipated. Was it present for 2,000 years before that? I can't tell you. I can only tell you when we discovered it. We didn't have any kind of technology that would really let us see that before. So these storms do come and go. We just have no idea, without being able to see a bunch of them, what the time frames for that are. So I'm going to start on Jupiter's atmosphere on Wednesday, and we'll finish up the Jovian planets and get on towards the towards the moons. Questions? Questions? I'm sorry. Which highest number of moons? Saturn, last I knew, but it might be Jupiter. Jupiter has a lot too, so I'd have to I'd have to look and see the counts. Jupiter and Saturn both have the biggest. It would depend on the depth, how, how big or how little are you allowing a moon to be. Some of the moons that are being detected now are you know, a kilometer across or a half a kilometer. When you're talking about something 500 meters, are you really, is it really a moon or is it a rock? You know, there is no formal definition of a moon other than something orbiting a planet though. So it is a good, good point because it could be, it could be different depending on what's, what's there.